What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. <laughs> I say that you're a terrible president. So, we're even. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, no, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe, even during global pandemics, on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, not to mention your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly, locked-down investigative journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us on yet another extraordinary day in these United States of America. All right, I need to be uh, quick about this because I need plenty of time here for my guest today. I have a lot of questions to ask of Mark Joseph Stern, uh, including about his report on whether the president of the United States has the authority, the legal and or constitutional authority to cancel the 2020 general election. That is a question which is no longer as crazy as it might once have sounded. And the answer is somewhat more unsettling than you may want to hear right now, as both Connecticut and Indiana over the past 24 hours have joined about half a dozen other states in postponing their presidential primary elections until June, which, by the way, seems pretty optimistic to me at this point. But hey, we are in the business here of telling you the truth on the broadcast, or as Desi Doyen likes to call us, your early warning system. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I hope that this early warning system is wrong about June, but, um, you know, we it's early We'll see. Uh, yeah, well, that's June. Never mind June. What about November? We will talk to Mark Joseph Stern about that uh, and much more coming up. In the meantime, California Governor Gavin Newsom said in a letter to the Trump administration that 56% of the state's population, that would be 25 and a half million people in California, are projected to be infected with the coronavirus over an eight-week period. 
In the letter, Newsom asked Donald Trump to deploy the USNS Mercy Hospital ship to the Port of Los Angeles until November of this year, quote, to help decompress our current health care delivery system in the L.A. region in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Now, 25.5 million people, 56% of the state's population being infected. That sounds pretty scary. But Jesse Melger, a spokesperson for the governor, specified that the estimate of 56% of the state's population becoming infected is without mitigating factors, such as, you know, sending that hospital ship to Los Angeles and other measures. Melgar told The Hill that uh, the state is deploying every resource at its disposal to meet this challenge, and we continue to ask for the federal government's assistance in this fight. On Thursday, the administration said it would send another Navy hospital ship, the Comfort, to the uh, New York City Harbor. Also on Thursday, CNN reported that the administration planned to send Mercy to Seattle in the next five to ten days. Now, Washington state is one of the states hit hardest by this virus. They have more than uh, 1,800 confirmed cases and 68 deaths at last check. I suspect both numbers are higher by now. But uh, a uh, spokesperson for the Pentagon, the chief Pentagon spokesperson, confirmed that, in fact, the comfort on the West Coast, uh, the comfort on the East Coast is intended to go to New York. But the Mercy's destination on the West Coast is still to be determined. However, the spokesperson said that uh, maintenance for these hospital ships means that it will be weeks before the comfort on the East Coast is underway at all to New York. As we told you yesterday, despite Trump's claims that the ships were ready and in great shape and being uh, deployed immediately in taking his own action here in California to mitigate the virus's spread on Thursday night, California governors, California's governor announced that the nation's first statewide stay at home order would be in place, affecting more than 40 million residents here in the Golden State. They are being uh, we are being asked to stay at home for all but essential needs now, like groceries, uh, takeout food, banking, pharmaceutical needs, while all businesses other than those specified as critical infrastructure by the federal government, which includes radio, by the way. So, yes, we will be here as long as we can for you that uh, businesses all be closed until further notice. By Friday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo issued a similar order across the Empire State for 20 million New Yorkers, and Illinois' governor issued the same for 13 million in the land of Lincoln uh, on Friday as well, with more such uh, states expected to do so in the coming days, if not hours. During his uh, hour-long live-streamed press conference with reporters, California's Governor Newsom said, based on current data and infection rates, unless that curve can be flattened with measures like the ones that he is trying to take here, the state would soon require 10,000 more hospital beds than it currently has. But Newsom has said the projected flood of cases can be greatly reduced if residents heed uh, his order. That is still a big if, of course. And in uh, Pennsylvania, where a similar guideline had been in place, Pennsylvania's Governor Tom Wolf tightened restrictions to mandate the closure of, quote, all non-life-sustaining businesses, as he described it. 
noting that many businesses had not been in compliance with previous orders and would now be subject to heightened enforcement, including civil penalties and loss of licenses. Wolf said the more stringent requirements were required because of businesses defying voluntary orders issued earlier in the week, even as the virus continued to spread rapidly throughout the Keystone State. Although I got to say my favorite uh, such order, we're seeing a lot of these around the country, came from Sterling, Colorado where the Logan County Sheriff's Office issued a uh, plea for help from its traditional nemesis. They said, uh, this is uh, on their Facebook page, quote, due to the COVID-19 pandemic and its contagious nature, the Logan County Sheriff's Office is asking all criminal activities and nefarious conduct to cease (laughs) until further notice. We appreciate your anticipated cooperation in halting crime and thank criminals in advance. We will update you when you can return to your normal criminal behavior. Well, I'm glad they have a sense of humor about (laughs) it. Yes, me too. We need that right around now. Uh, In the meantime, a CEO of a Georgia-based hospital uh, said the supplier of a protective mask critical for healthcare workers treating COVID-19 patients is charging $7 for the masks, which typically cost 58 cents. Scott Steiner, CEO of Phoebe Putney Health System, said in an appearance on CNN, they want $7 per mask. They've got a million of them on hand, and this is a mask that would normally cost us 58 cents. He said, but I would tell you, we're probably going to go ahead and take them for $7 each because we are that desperate. Steiner said that the Albany, Georgia-based hospital began to see an influx of patients last Tuesday and Wednesday. He said the hospital has gone through six months' worth of supplies in less than a week. Employees are now working to sew together masks out of surgical sheets that he said could be used over the N95 mask to extend the life of each one, allowing healthcare workers to wear them more than once. If we can't keep our employees safe, he said, there will be no one to care for the patients. So why hasn't the federal government at this point, we have been talking about this and talking about masks ventilators, other immediate needs. Why hasn't the federal government ordered U.S. manufacturing plants to create these things at the rate and at the price that is needed by now? That is hard to say. Donald Trump has said he was invoking the Defense Production Act days ago, which would allow for exactly that. But as far as I know, he has yet to do so. And yes, as I noted on our previous show, Republicans are now calling for handing out money to everyone, to individuals and to large and small companies alike, as they always do when they uh, pretend they oppose socialism and they hope to trick the country into believing that Democrats are somehow trying to destroy the nation with socialism, even though we are already a socialist nation in many regards, especially When Republicans want the government to start handing out free money, whether it be tax cuts or subsidies to their favorite companies or when they ruin the economy, as happened in 2008 and is happening again now. Uh, But Republican socialism, by the way, is way more socialist 
than anything Democrats generally or even dare calling for. Don't believe me? According to The Washington Post's coverage of Trump's press uh, briefing on Thursday, he said, quote, I do. I really do. Trump was responding to a question of whether he would like to see the federal government take a stake in private companies. The federal government took equity stakes, effectively a type of ownership position in certain companies that were bailed out during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Uh, that's a way of protecting taxpayer investments in firms and ensuring that the taxpayers potentially benefit when a company recovers. But uh, Washington Post notes the approach is controversial because it essentially involves partial government ownership of private company companies. So, yes, that would be the federal government taking over the means of production, the very actual definition of socialism that Republicans pretend to be so much against that they couldn't wait for Bernie Sanders to win so they could call him a socialist and a communist from here to November. Well, come on. The Republicans would call a ham sandwich socialism if they thought it would help them politically. Of course. Regardless of what the actual definition is. Right. Uh, and in this case, by the way, at least when it comes to the need for you know making masks and ventilators and other uh, protective equipment that is needed to keep our uh, our, our healthcare officials, uh, our doctors and nurses alive during this pandemic. Of course, it should be done. But uh, Trump is talking about doing uh, that with all of the companies that he's considering giving money and guaranteeing loans for. Just please jot that down. Keep that in mind next time we get back to normal times when Republicans are claiming the Democrats are socialists as a evil thing. And then there is this from Friday's press briefing in which the president of the United States, frankly, appears to be cracking. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism and uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Comcast. Let me just tell for whom you work. Let me just tell you something. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might and it might not. I happen to feel good about it, but who knows? I've been right a lot. Let's see what happens, John. <laughs> Name one time that you've been right, Mr. President. Uh, but uh, that's terrible report. He was asking a question. What do you tell Americans who are scared right now? That is a total softball question. Yes. It's intended to say, here's what you say to people who are scared right now. And he can't even he can't even muster that. I, I know. It was just amazing to see him sort of flip out about that question, you know, once again, raising questions about his mental well-being. I mean, I yeah. would think he would thank him for that question and to, you know, use that opportunity to put the American people at ease. That said, you're absolutely right. It was a softball question, and uh, the reporters in many cases are doing terrible jobs in deferring to the White House in these questions. They're not asking the tough questions. They should be about the Defense Authorization Act. Uh, what is it called? The uh, Defense Production, Production Act. Act. 
about you know why we don't have millions of more masks. Uh, there's all kinds of questions they ought to be asking. But frankly, in these uh, press briefings they are now holding each day, uh, the journalists are not doing a very good job. But of course, even when they do a crappy job, like, hey, what, what do you tell people who are scared, Mr. President? Even that leads the president to flipping out. Now, some of them are trying to, but it's incredibly difficult when you have someone like Trump who is unable to articulate any coherent thoughts whatsoever and is just basically trying to deflect blame wherever he can. Now, with that in mind, with that mentality for this president at this point in a crisis that could go on for months... Would you put it beyond him to use a national emergency amid a global pandemic to try and cancel the upcoming presidential election altogether this November? I wouldn't. Does the law and or the Constitution allow it? Well, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate looked at that question. He joins us next on that and the failure of both the U.S. immigration and the court system right now to handle the crisis much better than the president is at this point. All of that is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You have been forewarned. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. The Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Donald Trump and his administration are frantically now trying to rewrite the history of its wildly bungled and politicized and deadly initial response to the COVID-19 crisis. But that history is already written, and the administration's failure to take the threat of coronavirus seriously for weeks on end is already well-documented. For example, as Mark Joseph Stern reported last week at Slate, as the coronavirus spreads across the U.S., much of the nation is attempting to limit the pandemic's reach. Schools are shuttering, businesses are telling workers to stay at home, and federal judges are restricting entry to the courthouse for high-risk individuals. Last week, immigration judges tried to do their part by putting up CDC posters that explained how to identify symptoms of the coronavirus and stop its spread. But the Trump administration promptly ordered these signs taken down, asserting that judges had no authority to place advisories in their courts without permission. The Judges Union, the National Association of Immigration Judges, or NAIJ, sent a letter with guidance on dealing with the coronavirus. Among other recommendations, the NAIJ suggested that judges put up two posters prepared by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called COVID-19 Symptoms and Stop the Spread of Germs in both Spanish and English versions. A few hours later, Christopher Santoro, the acting chief immigration judge, sent the following email. Earlier today, the NIAJ sent a message to immigration judges suggesting they post a CDC-generated coronavirus precaution flyer in public areas of the courts to include doors to courtrooms 
This is just a reminder that immigration judges do not have the authority to post or ask you to post signage for their individual courtrooms or their waiting areas. Per our leadership, the CDC flyer is not authorized for posting in the immigration courts. If you see one, please remove it. Thank you. Hours after the NAIJ revealed this directive, the government reversed course, announcing that it would let the sign stay up. While the administration quickly walked back this particular gag on immigration judges, however, Stern reports that Trump's Department of Justice has been quietly muzzling these judges for years. It has relentlessly sought to transform them into cogs in the president's deportation machine. The coronavirus poster controversy, he says, is a microcosm of the DOJ's hostile attitude toward immigration judges who are appointed by the attorney general to adjudicate immigration matters, including asylum and removal proceedings. I would argue that it is also a microcosm of how the Trump administration writ large not only viewed the crisis as a hoax for crucial weeks on end until only very recently, uh, yes, as late as uh, just this past week, but they also had less than zero concern for the health and well-being of asylum seekers or, for that matter, even the American immigration judges selected, for the most part, to keep immigrants out rather than fairly adjudicate cases of asylum. It also underscores, as uh, Stern notes, how immigration judges are political appointees under the rule of the executive branch, specifically the DOJ, as opposed to a part of the judicial branch, where one would think immigration judges would be more appropriately and fairly seated so that they don't become political tools of any administration, as clearly they now are. But even the judicial branch itself has been wildly slow in responding to the coronavirus crisis. As Stern notes, for weeks, public health officials have warned that the coronavirus will spread rapidly into the U.S., but the infection rate could slow with social distancing and severe restrictions on mass gatherings. The nation's judiciary, however, did not listen. Civil, criminal and immigration courts continued to operate normally, with very few exceptions, until just late last week, even on Monday. Uh, after both the president and most governors had finally declared a state of emergency, a huge number of America's courts continued to operate, forcing judges, attorneys, litigants, defendants, immigrants and court staff into close quarters with potentially infected individuals. As of just this past Monday, federal district courts around the country were still in regular operation, though many had suspended jury trials. Chief Justice John Roberts, the head of the federal judiciary, had not issued public guidance to these courts, leaving them to fend for themselves, even as he announced on Monday that the Supreme Court now has canceled March's oral arguments, helpfully including hearings regarding the release of Donald Trump's tax filings that were scheduled for March. But the most important coronavirus-related judicial rulings may still lie ahead. We have been reporting for some time now on this program on the various states which have postponed their primary elections, optimistically enough, until early June, while uh, speaking with elections officials who are 
right now scrambling to figure out if those elections can be changed to all vote by mail elections to try and help mitigate the spread of the coronavirus while still allowing our representative democracy to move forward through elections as planned. But Mark Joseph Stern is looking beyond the primaries all the way to the November election. And he wonders, well, what if, as many scientists predict, coronavirus spreads widely through the spring and the summer? And what if, come November, the nation is still in the grips of a pandemic? Could Donald Trump simply cancel the 2020 presidential election? The answer to that question is not as straightforward as you might think or hope. Joining us now to discuss some of these unthinkable questions and more is the man who thinks about them every day of late, I suspect. Mark Joseph Stern covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court and much more for Slate.com and will never be quarantined from the broadcast. Oh, Mark, welcome back to it, sir. <laughs> Happy to be back. You are right. This is what I think about day and night, every waking hour, and in my dreams as well. So happy to be here to share these nightmares with you. Yeah. Yes, I, I think uh, you may have seen me wandering around in your nightmares as well, uh, as I am also uh, just obsessed with this right now. Uh, first off, Mark, uh, you are you're based in in Washington D.C. Uh, uh, correct? You do yes. do you live in the district proper? Yes, I do. What, what kind of uh, voluntary uh, home arrest mandates are you uh, currently under out there, and how are you guys adapting to it? So we are not yet in a shelter-in-place situation here in the district, mm -hmm. as I speak. Um, we are advised to stay in our homes as much as humanly possible. I live in a two-bedroom apartment with my husband, who is also working from home. He has commandeered my office, and so I am stuck in the bedroom and the closet. Uh, back in the closet, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, um, come on out of the closet, Mark. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it's an adjustment for me, just like it is for everyone else, but I consider myself very lucky that I have, uh, you know, digs with mm -hmm. uh, electricity and running water and that we have enough food and that we have enough money to get us through what appears to be an upcoming recession, if not an outright depression. Yep. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm trying to retain some semblance of normalcy and feeling very lucky that I am not in one of the more dire situations mm. and so many people are suffering so much right now. Yeah, they are, and uh, it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and some of our other sort of regular guests to, uh, you know, have some uh, continue with some uh, normalcy, uh, at least over our public airwaves in these uh, decidedly abnormal times. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, first, this immigration judge story. Uh, before they uh, change their pronouncement, uh, please uh, speculate for me, if you must, uh, Mark, what possible legitimate reason might the administration have to order the removal of CDC posters warning about COVID-19 and how to avoid spreading the virus? What must they have been thinking? So there's, of course, no truly legitimate reason uh, for the Trump administration to order that CDC posters be taken down from immigration courts as coronavirus spreads across the country. Um, I, I will tell you what the stated justification was, mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially that immigration judges have no independent authority to post 
anything in their courthouses, um, uh, in the hallways, in their courtrooms, in public spaces, that immigration judges have to ask permission from uh, officials in the Justice Department, in Donald Trump and William Barr's Department of Justice, before they post anything in their courthouses, even including CDC posters um, <laughs> produced by, you know, the uh, government agency, the mm-hmm. Centers for Disease Control. I, I think that's a revealing justification because uh, it really kind of dovetails with the broader approach the Trump administration has taken to immigration judges, which is just putting them down and making their lives miserable uh, as much as they possibly can by treating these judges not as independent arbiters of the law, but as mere functionaries, essentially ICE agents in robes who are only tasked with deporting as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And and it it underscores a point that I I know that uh, I think we may have even talked about on this show in the past, and and it's a point that I think people don't understand. Immigration judges are not, uh, if you will, real judges, if that's the right way to put it. They are political appointees by the administration who, if I'm not mistaken, are not required to pass any sort of Senate approval process or anything else at all. Am I correct about that? So I hesitate to use the language of real judges and fake judges. I, I think that they are judges, but what they are not are Article Three judges, meaning okay. they aren't like the district court judges who hold trials mm-hmm. on all kinds of matters, criminal and civil, and decide constitutional questions that eventually get appealed. Um, they are part of the executive branch, and they are actually appointed by the attorney general himself. And they are uh, political appointees in the sense that they are appointed by, a, you know, a politician. William Barr is mm-hmm. very much a politician. Uh, they do not have to undergo Senate confirmation. And the political branch, the executive branch, uh, exercises a great deal of control and authority over them, uh, including the ability to overrule their decisions. So uh, there's this kind of quirky law that gives the attorney general authority to just overturn an immigration judge's decision on his own accord. Mm -hmm. And the Trump administration has extended that to other political appointees, essentially allowing this high-level series of basically Trumpists Mm -hmm. in the Justice Department to intervene in these judges' work and just tell them you're not allowed to keep letting these people staying in the United States. You need to deport them more frequently. Do these uh, immigration judges have to have any sort of, I mean, as I said, there's no Senate oversight. Do they have to have any actual court or legal experience, or can they pretty much uh, Bill Barr and the DOJ just appoint anyone they want to be a... I, I am not aware of the statutory qualifications. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there may be some rules that they have to be lawyers, that they have to have you know some training in the law. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the 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 important point here is no, they needn't be immigration experts. They can be anyone who William Barr wants, who's a lawyer, who is probably going to deport a lot of people. Barr can say, hey, buddy, guess what? You're an immigration judge now. Have we, ha- have we seen, uh, since the uh, administration's apparent change in position, uh, not only on that poster, uh, but their change in position from, you know, uh, the coronavirus is a democratic hoax, no worse than the flu, to, oh, it's a serious global pandemic, as I've been saying all along. Uh, have we seen any of that change of position uh, reflected to your knowledge at the border, uh, at least among these uh, immigration judge courts? Are, are hearings even proceeding at this point? 
So what's happening now is that the entire system is in total disarray. So uh, the administration initially refused to shut down any immigration courts, and then, surprise, surprise, people started testing positive for the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who had been in immigration courts. I spoke to an individual who works at the New York City Immigration Court who said that people who were exhibiting symptoms of the coronavirus were going into court, and uh, judges Mm -hmm. were not being allowed to cancel those hearings, um, that these rooms that were exposed to the coronavirus were not being cleaned. I think that... uh, that has changed a little bit since last week. Um, some courts have been shut down. Some non-essential hearings uh, have been canceled. Um, people who are not currently detained, if they have hearings coming up, uh, those have all been put off. Um, but the system is still operating. It's still sort of lumbering through this crisis. Um, and, you know, we should not forget there are more than 50,000 detained immigrants in this country, yeah. people who are in these horribly unsanitary immigrant detention facilities. And they have no real recourse here. They have almost no way to get out of these facilities. Um, and the administration has not gestured toward releasing them. So they, the administration is essentially guaranteeing that these facilities will become epicenters of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, you uh, reported that there's already uh, outbreaks cropping up in the detention facilities, yes. which were which were never sanitary even before the uh, coronavirus and the Correct. need for public distancing. So uh, we're talking 50 50,000 people who are sort of shoved together into these camps, these immigration centers, and and there appears to be no plans for any sort of changes. They are just living there, becoming vectors for the disease amongst themselves there? Yes, that's exactly right. Even as more uh, ICE agents Mm -hmm. who oversee some of these facilities and CBP agents test positive for the coronavirus, and we know that they have exposed themselves to individuals behind bars, and the administration simply isn't doing wow. much about it at all. Uh, before we move on to the uh, the, the judiciary branch uh, specifically, uh, should those immigration judges in the uh, in the executive branch should that be all moved to the judiciary? As far as you see, I mean, you know, they are after all responsible for making judicial judgments based on the legislative statutes and executive branch implementation of those laws. Shouldn't that just shouldn't they all be moved? to the judiciary from the executive? So that is an excellent question. And if you had asked me four years ago, I would have said yes. Uh-huh. Now that the uh, now that Donald Trump has put so many awful judges in the federal judiciary, in the Article Three judiciary, I'm not sure if I still would say yes. Uh, I think that, sadly, some immigrants might actually fare better before um, politically appointed immigration judges mm. than they do before uh, some of Trump's uh, Article Three judges. Um, the whole system is just so captured by Trump and his allies right now. But in a in a different world where <laughs> President Hillary Clinton is in office today, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think it makes sense to uh, move all of this this entire framework into the judiciary and impose much stricter due process rules on it because right now it's kind of freewheeling and these uh, these judges and these political appointees get to kind of make up the rules as they go along and it's very very damaging to the lives and liberty of immigrants who are caught up in the system so I, I want to ask you about the Supreme Court uh, which I know is is your favorite beat I suspect in a moment but uh, where are we as far as the rest of the judiciary goes have they finally uh, closed all of the courts around the country that you said as of as of Monday, last Monday, they were still up and operating. No, 
not all of the courts have closed, and there are a few reasons why. One is that the appeals courts um, are beginning to uh, hold these oral arguments over the telephone, which is something that the Supreme Court could, of course, do, but refuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so appeals courts are still open, sort of virtually open. They are uh, learning how to use this technology, as so many of us are. It's been a bit of a rocky start. There was a hearing on Friday morning when one of the judges dropped out for six minutes and came back and said, <laughs> this is a mess. Um, But the appeals courts are operating online. The district courts, the trial courts, right, the lower Mm -hmm. level of the federal judiciary, those courts cannot close completely because there are actually some constitutional concerns there. Think about the right to uh, uh, due process, the right to a speedy trial. Uh, There are actual hearings that need to be conducted at these courts, and every every court is basically handling it differently. So some have shut down to everything but bare-bones staff and are only holding these essential hearings. Um, others are maintaining something closer to business as usual, although I think that will probably end in the coming week. Um, and it is a mess because the chief judge of every different district court is just making these decisions on the fly. Finally, Chief Justice Roberts has issued some guidance here, um, but everyone's still kind of in uncharted territory, and I do not think that all of the courts are operating under the CDC's guidelines. I think, unfortunately, people are still being exposed to this virus in federal courtrooms right now. Wow. And that doesn't even take into account the just the effect that it's likely to have uh, on on both our criminal and civil uh, justice system, which is already facing a huge backlog even in in normal times. No, is is everything now going to be pushed back even further because of this? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I, I have litigator friends who have these, um, you know, these cases that are scheduled for 2021, 2022, right? These mm-hmm. courts operate on three, four, five-year calendars, mm-hmm. and all of that's going to get pushed back because this has been such a rupture, um, and none of these cases are going to disappear. And so it's a whole nightmare. And frankly, when we have uh, ended this pandemic, if and when this pandemic is over, in some ways that will be the start of the nightmare for these courts because they're going to have to figure out how to make up for lost time. And so far as I know, nobody really has any plans to help them out. And you spoke with a bunch of those uh, litigators, uh, lawyers and and court staffers about all of this and heard a lot of concern about a bunch of aspects of the COVID-19 effect on the uh, uh, criminal justice system uh, from courtrooms. Uh, to prisons that nobody uh, really seems to have a handle on how to deal with. And the guidance coming down from the top, that would be Chief Justice Roberts, uh, doesn't seem to be giving them a lot of clues. What did you learn? What are you hearing from the folks who are, uh, you know, still in there on a day to day basis, uh, you know, who may have clients who are in jail, uh, who are, you know, are, are facing hearings? What's going on in the courtrooms right now? Well, um, so as of about March 15th, which was when I was writing, reporting that story, uh, a lot of courtrooms were operating under business as usual, state and federal courts, which means that hundreds of people were being brought to jail into often a single packed courtroom, forced to sit on very small benches right up next to each other and wait their turn uh, to, to hear whether they will face charges, and if so, whether they will be arraigned uh, or perhaps sent back to jail. Um, and that 
we now know, uh, it was obvious on, on, on Monday, it's mm-hmm. now <laughs> been proven that that was spreading the coronavirus because people who attended those hearings have been testing positive for COVID-19 left and right. And I think that the courts are a little more scared now. I think that over the last few days after I wrote that article, um, what, what we've seen is state courts shutting down to maintain only their essential hearings and operations. Um, we have seen a drop in the number of arrests that police are making for low-level offenses, things like simple possession of a drug or driving with a suspended license or a technical probation violation. In many jurisdictions, we are seeing those arrests go down, um, and some police have adopted this cite-and-release policy where they'll issue people a citation for some minor criminal offense and then let them go on their way. Um, All of that is a responsible uh, uh, sort of uh, way to address this crisis, Mm -hmm. but it should have been done a month ago, and I fear it may now be a little too late. Well, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was at least a bit clearer on uh, how things would move forward for the moment in his own court. Uh, he canceled all Supreme Court oral arguments through the end of the month, which seems, uh, frankly, very optimistic to me, uh, though given the uh, ages and, and health conditions of a number of the justices, it obviously makes sense. Uh, do you know if they are discussing the possibility of holding those arguments uh, remotely somehow, uh, if not this month, then in uh, upcoming months? Because I don't know how they're going to be able to, you know, just start pick up uh, as usual in April or May or June or July. I also don't know. And I, I actually am not sure if anyone knows. Yeah. Um, the chief justice has told us very little. There was a conference today at the court, but... Uh, all we know is that the, the court does plan to issue decisions without actually taking the bench. So this will be the first time since Bush v. Gore that the court has issued a decision when the justices are absent from the bench, or not announcing it on the bench, I should say. Um, and so that is one step forward. But like you said, you know, March arguments were very important. They included cases like the one about Trump's tax returns mm-hmm. and his financial records. These critically important cases testing uh, both Congress's and the state's ability to obtain Trump's financial records. Um, those, those hearings are now on hold indefinitely, which means that the, the president's financial records will stay hidden indefinitely. Oh. Um, no, clear, no clear resolution to that anytime soon. And of huh. course, we have April arguments that include issues like whether presidential electors can uh, vote for whoever they choose, um, even if their state votes for somebody else. Those, those issues affect the election that is right around the corner. Yeah. I, I think that the court should live stream oral arguments. It should just bite the bullet and uh, everyone can telephone in, except for Clarence Thomas, since he wouldn't say anything anyway. But <laughs> this, this court does not adapt readily to new technologies, and I don't see it coming into the 21st century anytime soon. So, uh, just to be clear, and we're going to get to that uh, November election and the, the, the effect that this uh, case about the uh, faithless electors may or may not have in uh, whatever may happen in November. We're going to get to that in a second. But uh, just to be clear, you, you said they are going to issue uh, their their opinions, but that would only be on cases that they have already heard. Correct. They're not going That's to be doing exactly that. Right. So if, if a case like uh, tr- Trump's taxes or these other things that they haven't had the chance that they had to cancel or oral arguments for right now, those are suspended. Essentially, we we don't know if there will be a decision at all on them this year. 
That's exactly right. Um, the court has not yet said we'll just decide them without holding arguments, mm-hmm. uh, which means they're just indefinitely postponed and literally no one knows what will happen. Is, is there any historical precedent for any of this at all, Mark Joseph Stern? Have we ever had to uh, postpone uh, hearings like this or, or unconvene the U.S. Supreme Court? So when the Supreme Court announced that this would happen, um, the press release noted that the court delayed hearings during the 1918 flu epidemic, sometimes called the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. even though it did not originate in Spain, uh, and also in the 1790s during two different yellow fever outbreaks. Mm. Those are the only precedents. So uh, we really have to reach back to pandemics that no one alive today can remember uh, to see anything like what the court's doing now. What an extraordinary moment, but I've been saying that a lot these days. Uh, Mark, uh, you also look at uh, U.S. election law and the U.S. Constitution, and you've been looking at it very closely uh, recently to find out what, if anything, it might allow for a president, let's say a president desperate to stay in office in the middle of a state of emergency called in response to a global pandemic, what such a a uh, president might be able to do to postpone or even cancel a presidential election entirely? And the answer is somewhat less reassuring than one might think. Let's take a quick break and come back to let Mark Joseph Stern infect you with his knowledge on that matter. Uh, Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are cliffhanging on the edge of the Bradcast. We'll be right back, so don't let go. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It could be a very cold November. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with my guest Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter from slate.com. Okay, Mark. Clearly, states have the ability to at least postpone primary elections, as we've seen now in Louisiana, Georgia, Ohio, Kentucky, Maryland, Connecticut, and Indiana as of Friday, with other postponements likely still to come, as some of those states scramble to try and move to vote-by-mail elections to mitigate the threat of the coronavirus. But last week, you looked into whether the president has the authority during a national emergency to cancel the 2020 presidential election altogether. And, well, what you found was both A, comforting, and B, not comforting in the least. So um, does does the president have the authority to cancel the November general election? No, he does not, for two related reasons. The first is that the date of the election is set in federal law by Congress, Mm -hmm. and unless Republicans somehow take back the House over the next few months, Congress will not change that date. And also, the Constitution makes it quite clear that election or no, Trump's term will expire on January 20th, 
2021 at noon, which means that even if he cancels the election, Mm -hmm. he is not going to be in office after that date and time. He will constitutionally have zero powers of the presidency. So even if Congress did postpone the election, which you suggest they will not, the Constitution either way will terminate his term, period. But if there's no election, I guess that would be the very definition of a constitutional crisis at that point as far as who's in control. I say we get Alexander Haig maybe at that point, but (laughs) joke for old people. Uh, We would just go at January 2021. We would have nobody as president. So... (laughs) Other people have gamed out exactly how this would happen, and you have to get really into the weeds about the line of succession here. But Mm -hmm. basically, every member of the House also serves two-year terms, right? And so Mm -hmm. their terms would expire on a little earlier in January. Those Mm -hmm. are fixed in the Constitution. So there would be no Speaker of the House to fill the role of the presidency, which would then turn us to the Senate, because some, though not all, senators would still be serving their terms. And my understanding is that it would be the president pro temp of the Senate, which is Patrick Leahy, who would then fill the president's shoes it, and uh, occupy the Oval Office. Not Chuck Grassley? He's not the no, president pro No, because Leahy's got him beat. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then I guess we could do worse than that, although not much. Okay, so that's the comforting part of your answer. Now to the not comforting in the least part. States could essentially cancel their own statewide elections for presidential electors if they decided that they could not safely hold uh, elections this November or just because they wanted to, I guess. Correct? Yeah, so we have to remember that we don't elect the president by popular vote. I think everyone remembered that in 2016. Mm -hmm. We have an electoral college, and when you vote for the president, you're actually voting for a slate of electors who then convene and cast votes in every state pursuant to state law. So today, obviously, we all go to the polls and we cast vote for president, and we don't really think about these electors, right? Mm -hmm. But the Constitution actually gives the state legislatures the authority to appoint these electors, not the people of the state. And when the first presidential election was held in the United States, a number of legislatures just went ahead and did that. They said, you know, we don't need to hold a vote. We're just going to decide who these electors are. And theoretically, state legislatures retain that power. All of them have obviously delegated that power to the people now, right? Mm -hmm. Every state does hold a popular election for president. But there's no clear constitutional reason why legislatures couldn't just claw that back and say, you know what, we've decided that we don't want to hold an election Mm -hmm. or we're going to ignore the results of the election. We, as the legislature, have the power to appoint electors, and we're just going to do that ourselves. So let's just say for fun, a state like Alabama or Mississippi, if they determined that the only way we could hold a fair election would be to send every registered voter a vote-by-mail ballot, and as uh, Democrats seem to believe, if everybody got to vote, then, you know, Democrats would win all over the place. If the Alabama or Mississippi or any other state uh, that was controlled by Republicans was looking at that, they could say, you know what, we don't want to do that. We're just going to change the law here real quickly, and we will let the Republican-majority legislature and Republican governor decide who will or won't be the uh, electors that we uh, send to the Electoral College this year. 
mostly yes, but it's actually very unclear what role, if any, the governor even gets to play here. So obviously, every state currently operates under, like I said, you know, a popular vote for the president. Mm -hmm. um, and those elections have been codified in state law that have been passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. But the Constitution doesn't say anything about the governor having any authority whatsoever mm. in the appointment of electors. Okay. And so there is a live debate about whether the legislature could claw back this authority all by itself and say, yeah, we know that there are these laws that have been duly enacted that govern elections, but they are optional. Under the Constitution, they are optional. And we have decided that we want to revert back to the original system. And as the legislature, we're just going to do our own thing, appoint our own electors. And if people don't like it, too damn bad. <laughs> You know, these are the kind of topics that you might hear on a podcast that discusses conspiracy theories and all kinds of, you know, crazy ideas that are really fun to listen to, to be frank. But they're not the sort of things that we would necessarily cover on this show. But these are not now crazy ideas anymore. We could see something like this, I, I suspect. And, you know, if you look at legislatures like uh, North Carolina, which, you know, as soon as uh, the state had the temerity to elect a Democrat as uh, governor, the legislature basically tried to take away all the powers of the governor. Right. We could see that happening, you know, even with a Democratic governor, we could see that now happening with that uh, Republican legislature arguing, well, this is up to us, not up to the Democratic governor. We are going to name... Donald Trump to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, our, our choice for president this year because it is simply it's a national emergency. It is simply not safe to hold an election. And it might be hard to to contradict that argument, Mark. Yes. And, and just to be clear, I mean, it might sound far fetched, but this was the Florida legislature's plan B in the 2000 election. Yes. Um, you know, if the Supreme Court had not decided Bush v. Gore the way it did, mm -hmm. the Florida legislature was prepared to pass a resolution yep. saying we, the legislature of Florida, appoint our electors to vote for George W. Bush. And the, the legislature believed that that would be the end of the matter, even though the Florida Constitution itself says that there must be a popular vote throughout the state for president, the legislature said, we're reading the U.S. Constitution, and we don't feel like we're limited by whatever state law says. So, you know, again, we're all, we're in the realm of theory here. Uh -huh. This is all hypothetical, uh -huh. but it's not so hypothetical that it hasn't been discussed and debated. Yep. I mean, this is something that could have happened in 2000. Yep. My very good friend, uh, former Congressman Tom Feeney down there in Florida, was pushing exactly that during the 2000 election if it didn't go their way in the Supreme Court. Luckily, they had already purchased their Supreme Court, so things worked out for them. They didn't have to invoke that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, last question here, speaking of the Supreme Court, we noted that they were to decide this uh, this question on faithless electors, and basically whether a, a, an elector who is appointed or voted or however state does it uh, to the electoral college whether that elector must actually vote the way that their states have uh, voted or mandated them to do it's actually i think a guest we had on the show is uh, now going to be uh, in the supreme court on that matter that case was to be decided this year by the Supreme Court, whether a, an elector could vote the way they wanted to or if they had to vote a certain way. What effect 
might that have on all of this, as you see it, presuming the Supreme Court actually is able to hear this case and, and make a decision on it this year? Well, we can imagine that the Supreme Court will probably not create a constitutional right to faithless electors, by which I mean I am skeptical that even the Supreme Court would say that all of the electors who convene for the Electoral College can just vote however they want, no matter what the state told them to do. Mm-hmm. That, that just seems like such a recipe for absolute chaos that might not play to the favor of Republicans that I think the, the majority of the Supreme Court would prefer the devil it knows and just stick with the current system. But let's say that five justices on the Supreme Court decide that electors can actually be totally faithless, that the state's vote is advisory and that electors can vote for whoever they want. That would be so outrageously insane because it would turn the period between the election and the actual electoral college vote, which happens more than a month later, into this bizarre, intense lobbying of these electors, who are, by the way, mostly political operatives and functionaries that you have never heard of, who are chosen because they are well-connected and funders Mm -hmm. and donors, those people would then suddenly have the power in their hands and in their hands alone to decide the election, no matter how it went in the states. And they would be able to convene and say, well, we know that our state voted for Donald Trump, but we want to hand our votes to Joe Biden and vice versa. And it would mean that everyone would be lobbying these random people Mm -hmm. who just happen to be electors very intensely in the month after the election to try to vote one way or another to try to vote for their candidate no matter how the state went. Which is actually somewhat sort of how the uh, system was set up in the first place, actually. (laughs) So, boy, reading from his uh, recipe book of absolute chaos, Mark Joseph Stern can be found uh, writing that book every day over at Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, greatly appreciate as ever, but uh, more now than ever, I I think, uh, you you joining us here on the broadcast and... uh, Stay safe out there, and I hope that we will be talking to you again soon as the uh, chaos unfolds. You too. There will be life after quarantine, I promise. If you promise, I believe it. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Okay, we have got to get out, although this just breaking from Fox News, a member of Vice President Mike Pence's office tests positive for coronavirus. Oh, dear. According to a spokesperson, and it comes from Fox News, so you know it's got to be true. (laughs) These are interesting days indeed. Uh, Anyway, thanks to Mark Joseph Stern. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free. You may have lots of time on your hands to do it. You can get it at bradblog.com along with years and years of other shows to keep you busy. All of that made possible by those of you who keep us on the air. This is a listener-supported program by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me some email if you like. I'd like to hear how you're doing during this uh, pandemic, wherever you may be, wherever you're listening to the broadcast. Let me know. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. Maybe we'll read some on the air. You can also find, follow, and share all we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I hope you will all stay safe. And as usual, I'm Brad Friedman wishing you good luck world.